ಸ್ತದೇಕಂ ಸ್ಮರಾಮಸ್ತದೇಕಂ ಹಜಾಮ ತದೇಕಂ ಜಗತ್ಸಾಕ್ಷಿಪಂ ಸದೇಕಂ ನಿಧಾನ ನಿರಾಲಂಬಮೀಶಂಬೋಧಿಪೋತ ಶರಣ್ಯಂ ವ್ರಜಾಮ On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Today we take up the idea of tapas. Tapas. This is a fundamental concept in Hinduism and Vedanta. And we find the idea of tapas in the Upanishads and the Puranas, the Itihasas, the Gita. It's an essential aspect or perhaps essential quality of spiritual discipline, of sadhana. It is also one of the yamas, one of the uh, niyamas, uh, d- the disciplines prescribed by Patanjali in yoga. So I'd like to take up the topic today. Swami, as you know, I was with Swami Swahanandaji for eight months. And in the afternoons, he, some devotees would come to visit him and he would put on a video of the Mahabharata, which is a big story of the war between the Pandavas and the Kauravas finally, and all the events leading up to it. And there are a number of instances depicted there where one or another warrior or sage will practice intense tapasya to get some boon. And Arjuna is one of those. Arjuna, uh, it, during the period of exile, he goes for tapasya to propitiate Lord Shiva. And he sits unmoving, and it's shown, of course, with his hand in a little, uh, what do you call that? Something to hold up his hand, and he's doing japa, Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. For days on end, he's propitiating Lord Shiva. And finally, uh, Lord Shiva appears. But he doesn't recognize him. He appears in the form of a hunter. And there's a mad boar that comes to attack Arjuna. And they both shoot it at the same time. And anyhow, so Shiva and Arjuna get into a duel. And Arjuna finds he's not able to beat the hunter to a surprise. Then it dawns on him. Oh, this is Lord Shiva, whom I was propitiating. And he falls at his feet, and Lord Shiva grants the boon that he was seeking, which is this uh, weapon, the uh, Pashupatastra, the Pashupatastra, this very powerful weapon of Lord Shiva. And after Arjuna gets that, then all the other devas also give him divine weapons. So that's how Arjuna becomes invincible by this... uh, Tapas, propitiating Lord Shiva. So the scriptures are full of such stories like 
origin of, of uh, practicing tapas to gain some boon or other. Uh, in the Bengali Ramayana, the story is told of how Durga Puja is celebrated in the autumn in Bengal. Mm. And this is uh, as related to Sister Nivedita by Swami Vivekananda. Rama was called the blue lotus-eyed, and he trusted to mother to help him to recover Sita. But Ravana had prayed to mother too, and Rama came and found him in her arms. So he knew he must do something tremendous, and he vowed 108 blue lotuses to her image if she would help him. Hanuman went off and got the lotuses, and Rama began the great call upon the mother. It was autumn, and the time of her puja was the spring. So it is in memory of that worship by Rama that the great mother worship has ever since been held in September. Now he covered her feet with blue lotuses till 107 were offered, and mother had stolen one. And lo, the last was missing. But Rama was determined. He was not to be beaten, and calling for a knife, he was about to cut out his own eye that the number of lotuses might be complete. And that won the mother, and she blessed the great hero so that his arms prevailed. So these stories have a meaning, this idea of tapas, that tapas does generate power. The literal meaning, of course, is Heat. Tapas means heat. Swami Vivekananda, teaching his intimate disciples in Thousand Island Park, said, Tapas means literally to burn. It is a kind of penance to heat the higher nature. It is sometimes in the form of a sunrise to sunset vow, such as repeating Om all day incessantly. These actions will produce a certain power that you can convert into any form you wish, spiritual or material. This idea of tapas penetrates the whole of Hindu religion. The Hindus even say that God made tapas to create the world. It is a mental instrument with which to do everything. And then quoting, everything in the three worlds can be caught by tapas. Here Swamiji refers to uh, the Mundakopanishad when he says, God made tapas to create the world. There's a verse there, tapasa chiyate brahma tato nam amijayate. By tapas, Brahman expands. From that is born annam, which literally means food, but here refers to as unmanifested matter, the unmanifested. And from that, annam evolves everything else in succession. So how does it start? starts with this tapas. Now, Brahman is not lacking anything. So here the idea it becomes a little different. This tapas is said to be jnanamayam, constituted of jnana, of knowledge. And this is one attempt to answer the question, why and whence this world? The creation itself proceeds from the tapas, from the tapas of Brahman, which is understood to be knowledge, or we can say intense but effortless thought. Now, this may not be very relevant, actually, for our spiritual life, 
There's another example I'd like to mention in the Upanishads, which is much more relevant to us. This is the um, conversation between uh, Bhrigu and his father Varuna in the Taittiriya Upanishad. As in so many of the Upanishads, uh, there's a, this is a conversation, a teaching moment, we can say. Bhrigu approaches his father, Varuna, and asks him to teach him Brahman. He says, Adhihi Bhagavo Brahma. Teach me Brahman. Teach me about Brahman. Now, Varuna knows that Bhrigu will have to experience Brahman himself to understand it. He can't understand it simply by being told about it. But he gives a hint. He says, first, food, prana, the eye, the ear, mind, speech. Then he adds, that from which these beings are born, that by which, when born, they live, that into which they enter, they merge, seek to know that. That is Brahman. Then Bhrigu very wisely undertakes tapas. Satapo tapyata, the Upanishad says, he undertook tapas to understand what is Brahman. Now what is this tapas? Hmm. Shankaracharya explains it in the following way. And he, he quotes from a verse, uh, an ob- obscure verse. Manasaschendriyanam cha haikagriyam paramam tapaha. One pointedness of the mind and sense organs is the highest tapas. So this tapas which mm, Brigo undertakes consists in the concentration of the outer and inner organs. For that forms the door to the knowledge of Brahman, says Shankaracharya. So, Brigo does his tapas and realizes that the totality of all matter, annam, is Brahman. He realizes annam is Brahman. But he's not quite satisfied with that. He feels there must be something more than that. So he approaches his father again. As in so many of the conversations in Upanishads, there's a repetition here. He comes to his father again and says again, Adhihi Bhagavo Brahma, teach me Brahman. And his father replies, Seek to know Brahman through tapas. Tapas is Brahman. Tapasa Brahma Vijjnasasva, tapo Brahma. So Bhrigu's path is correct. His idea was correct to practice tapas. And only he needs to go farther. So, Bhrigu again practices tapas, trying to know Brahman. And he goes deeper. He realizes that prana is Brahman. Then he goes back to his father again, asks him, teach me Brahman. Again, his father says, seek to know Brahman through tapas. Again, he goes deeper. He realizes that mind is Brahman. Still, he's not satisfied. He goes back to his father, asks him again, Adhihi Bhagavo Brahma, teach me Brahman. And the father says, seek to know Brahman through tapas. So again he goes, and he goes still deeper. He realizes that vijnana, intellect, is Brahman. Even then he knows he's not there yet. Again he comes to his father, again his father tells him, you seek to know Brahman through tapas. Finally, he realizes, ananda is Brahman, bliss is Brahman. Brahman is bliss, and he becomes established in the knowledge of Brahman. Anando Brahmheti Vijnanat.
and he realizes that all beings originate from bliss, are sustained by bliss, and again merge in bliss. Shankaracharya explains that Mrigo entered within. He entered within by degrees, solely through this tapas, this intense concentration, and realized the innermost bliss that is Brahman. So this tap in the Upanishads, tapas means intense concentration, bringing the whole constellation of our various faculties of action, perception, and conception to a single point. As we are able to approach this, the secret of the universe, or the the secret of our being, or the, the truth of our being, of who we really are, of reality with a capital R, that becomes revealed to us. Somehow, over time, the idea of tapas grew or expanded to include and, at least in the popular mind, refer generally to the kinds of self-imposed physical hardships and penances that we sometimes think of when we think of the word tapas, the austerities, which is perhaps why tapas is often translated into English as austerity or mortification or penance. I think these are all unfortunate terms. They're not helpful for understanding what is tapas. And uh, I'd like to read a, a paragraph from uh, Swami Prabhavananda and Christopher Isherwood, who discussed this very point, and they put it so clearly. They write, The English word austerity has a forbidding sound, but so have its two possible alternatives, mortification and discipline. Discipline to most of us suggests a drill sergeant, Mortification, a horrible gangrene. Austerity, a cabinet minister telling the public that it must eat less butter. He he must have gone through World War II in England, so the cabinet ministers were imposing austerities on the public. The Puritanism, which has so deeply colored our language, interferes here, as so often, with our understanding of Hindu thought. The Sanskrit word is tapas, which means in its primary sense that which generates heat or energy. Tapas is the practice of conserving energy and directing it toward the goal of yoga, toward union with the Atman. The wonderful definition of tapas, a very fine definition. Tapas is the practice of conserving energy and directing it toward the goal of yoga. They continue, Obviously, in order to do this, we must exercise self-discipline. We must control our physical appetites and passions. But what is psychologically misleading about the three above-mentioned English words is that they all stress the grim, negative aspect of this self-discipline instead of its joyful, positive aspect, the supreme achievement which the discipline makes possible. So I will try to stick to the word tapas and avoid the words like austerity and all that. Although in our books we find that it's constantly being translated as austerity. I think that we'll have to outgrow that. So this is an important important point they make, that there is joy in tapas. It's not some horrible 
thing. It's, there's a joy in it. It's a joy of self-mastery, the joy of restraint, called shamasukha. As we gain mastery over our bodies and minds, we get a higher joy, which we, we begin to taste through practice. And uh, Sri Krishna analyzes this very clearly in the Bhagavad Gita. In the 18th chapter, there's a pair of verses which explain this perfectly. Yattadagre vishamiva parināme mṛtopamam tatsukham sātikam proktam atma buddhi prasādajam vishayendriya-saṅyogāt yattadagre mṛtopamam parināme vishamiva tatsukham rājasam smritam he says that which is like poison at first, but like nectar at the end, that happiness is said to be sattvika and born of the clear knowledge of the self. But that which arises from the contact of the senses with the sense objects, it is like nectar at first, but it like poison at the end. This is said to be rajasika happiness. So let's face it, almost everybody is after this second happiness. Most of the time we're after the second happiness, that which is immediately pleasurable. It tastes like nectar. There's some very nice sweets in the kitchen. They're just offered the morphi. They taste very good. They taste like nectar. But afterwards (laughs) we get the poison, heart trouble, overweight, all these problems come. Tapas is a discipline leading to the first joy, the first kind of joy, the joy which in the beginning, all right, it's a little painful, it tastes a little like poison, but it brings us to joy. And uh, it's, uh, it's this first joy that one learns to enjoy. See, Krishna explains that one learns to enjoy it through abhyasa, practice. One learns to enjoy this sattvic joy. Even in secular life, we find this principle holds true. Like the, the, uh, it's a principle of delayed gratification. Say, take the case of a, a student who's trying to uh, get a PhD. I think some of us in this room know all about that. It's in a terrible uh, austerity, we can call it a terrible, mm, painful process, a real tapas. But when finally the, mm, Degree is granted, then we feel a great joy. And there's also a joy of having mastered the subject. There's a relevant uh, conversation uh, recorded with a a disciple with Swami Brahmananda, the spiritual son of Sri Ramakrishna, about tapas. What is tapasya? The question, uh, the question asked of Maharaj is, uh, what is meant by tapasya? And uh, Swami Brahmananda replies, there are different kinds of tapasya. Some take a vow that they will not sit for a long period. I have seen a man who had taken a vow not to sit for 12 years. At that time he had almost finished that period. Only five or six months were remaining. By constantly standing, his legs had grown very stout as in elephantiasis. 
For sleeping, he held to a rope. The rope was tied to both ends of a wooden piece, holding to which the man slept at night. There are other kinds of tapasya. In the winter season, one stands all night up to the neck in very cold water and spends the time making japam. In very hot weather, one sits and meditates in the midst of five blazing fires under a burning sun. In another kind, one stands or sits in meditation on a seat with pointed nails. So this is what often, in, maybe in the popular mind, these kind of practices constitute tapas or tapasya. So the disciple asks, Is this true tapasya, Maharaj? God knows, he answers. God knows. These people do these things with some motive. They hope they will become kings or enjoy the world in their next birth. They have admitted this to me. Do they get these results? The disciple asks. God knows, he says. <laughs> there is a coffee table book. We can call it a coffee table book on sadhus, which came out in the last 10 years or so probably. I've seen it full of pictures of all kinds of sadhus with amazing hairdos and amazing face and body painting. And some of them are undertaking these kinds of austerities, like standing on one leg or keeping one arm raised for 10 years, uh, those kind of things. You see, you see this, the man with the one arm raised, his, his arm is just a stick. There's nothing left. But somehow he's still keeping it up. And no doubt it takes uh, a lot of willpower. But obviously... Uh, Swami Brahmananda has a different opinion about it. The disciple goes on to ask, then what is real tapasya? He answers, real tapasya is not in such feats. Anyone can do these things by practice. It is very easy to conquer the body, but to conquer the mind is the greatest difficulty. To conquer lust, greed, desire for name and fame. Real tapasya lies in three things. One, you must be truthful. Truth is the pillar to which you must always hold. Every inch of you must be truthful in every action. Two, you must conquer lust. Three, you must gain control over your vasanas, that is, the subtle cravings and tendencies towards sense pleasures. These are the main things to be observed. Several points arise here. Sri Krishna specifically addresses this uh, issue of this kind of severe, painful tapas, uh, like holding up the arm or standing on one leg. He says, those people who practice severe, severe tapas, not ordained by scripture, given to ostentation and egoism, endowed with the power of lust and attachment, torture, senseless as they are, all the organs in the body, and me dwelling in the body. Know them to be asurika, fiendish in their resolve. We often find that these uh, sadhus who do these kind of crazy austerities, they, first of all, they're letting their picture be taken for a coffee table book. That means there's some ostentation there. They're showing off a little bit. And uh, they can be very, they can be apparently very egotistical. No doubt they're doing a, a, a kind of physical discipline, but it doesn't seem to extend to the mind. It's not a, the kind of tapas that Swami Brahmananda is talking about. 
Rather, we can compare this with the idea, the ideal presented to us by Sri Ramakrishna of the sattvic devotee. What does he do? Sri Ramakrishna says, His worship, charity, and meditation are all done in secret. People do not know about them at all. He meditates inside his mosquito curtain. People think he doesn't sleep well at night, and for that reason sleeps late in the morning. So people see a guy, he's snoring in the morning, the sun is already up, he's still snoring. They think, oh, he's lazy. he doesn't sleep well or he's lazy. But actually he's been up half the night meditating. So that's the sattvic devotee, whose uh, spiritual discipline, whose tapas is done in secret. There's no, he doesn't have any desire for name and fame. Doesn't have any desire to be known as a, as a big meditator or anything like that. In Gita, Sri Krishna also advocates the middle path. The middle path. So these kinds of severe things are, are, are overdoing it. Natyashnatastu yogosti. Yoga, he says, is not for one who eats too much, nor for one who does not eat. It is not for one who sleeps too much, or for, nor for one who remains without sleep. These are extremes. He says, for one who is moderate in food and recreation in effort for work, and in sleep and wakefulness. Yoga becomes Dukkha, the destroyer of misery. We may ask, if this is the case, if, if uh, spiritual practice, if tapas should be uh, the middle path, what about uh, Sri Ramakrishna? He, he, when we read about the spiritual disciplines he performed, we, we're stunned. He went without sleep for six or seven years. Hmm. Well, I will say I would say that uh, their case is different. Sri Ramakrishna and other uh, people like him, their case is different. They come not to purify themselves and attain illumination. They come to bring illumination to others. And Sri Ramakrishna, for his work, he needed to build up a lot of power. So his one function of the intense tapasya he did was to generate power which he then transmitted to his disciples and through his disciples to the whole world. Sri Ramakrishna used to, day, used to say, I have done 16 annas. Means that those days a rupee was made up of 16 annas. I have done 16 annas. You do at least one anna. His body was so strong, he could bear this kind of intense tapasya. But his, uh, even his disciples he knew wouldn't be able to bear even half of it. So he said, just do one-sixteenth. This question of moderation is relevant, though. What exactly is moderation? What is the middle of the path? Swami Brahmananda used to say, sleep for more than five hours is not rest, but a disease. (laughs) All right, so what is is the middle path? Is the middle path five hours? Of the middle path, eight hours. Of course, he was talking to monks, young, Brahma, young brahmacharans who were practicing meditation, and he wanted them to practice intense meditation. And if they're practicing meditation correctly, they would be rest, giving rest to the mind at that time also. Mm. So we have to find a middle path that is right for us. 
If we have uh, long hours of work during the day, five hours of sleep probably won't be enough for us. But we will have to remember that the middle, that middle path doesn't mean just easy and relaxed. Middle path means in between. Buddha in the, uh, in the light of Asia, that example is given, Buddha uh, of the, the Vena. If the string is too tight, what happens? The string breaks. If it's too loose, you won't get any sound. It has to be just tight enough. So we do need some intensity. We don't want to overdo it. We don't want to make it too lax. And Swami Brahmananda, of course, is always exhorting us to do more. Our tendency, most people's tendency is not to do too much. Most people's tendency is to, uh, on the other side, to do not quite enough. So he would say, struggle, struggle, struggle. Intense tapasya is needed. To buy a few pennies worth of cow dung cakes, set them burning, and sit in the middle of the fires is a very easy thing. To restrain lust, anger, and the other passions, not allowing them to rise up, that is tapasya. To master the passions is the highest tapasya. So I think it's clear that tapasya is uh, really all about what's going on within. The highest tapas is in gaining mastery over the passions. Passions, traditionally the six passions, lust, anger, greed, pride, envy, delusion. However, although the real tapas is within, I think there is also a value in mm, training the body, training the senses, this... uh, most of us, at least in the beginning of spiritual life, uh, we act according to the whims of the senses. Oh, I feel a little hungry. Let me go get a snack. Mm. And we allow our minds to be affected by every external circumstance. So uh, one training might be, mm, every time we feel a little hungry, we don't run for the chocolate bar or the potato chips. We just say, all right, I'm going to eat at lunchtime. I don't need to eat now. It's a, tra- it's a training of the senses. It's a kind of tapas. And then someone speaks a little harshly to us. We, uh, we practice, all right, I don't need to get angry. I just let it go. Uh, um, I'd like to turn now to the Gita. Uh, Sri Krishna discusses tapas at some length, in some detail, in the 17th chapter. He discusses three aspects of tapas, that relating to the body, to the speech, and to the mind. So first, the, the tapas of the body. Deva dvija guru pragna pujanam shaucha marjavam brahmacharya mahim sacha shari rantapa uchate. So this is the tapas of the body, the physical tapas. Though actually these also have their mental components. First is puja, worship of the, the devas, the gods, the dvija, the Literally, the twice-born, we can understand it to mean holy people, people who are dedicated to God. Guru, the spiritual teacher, and 
prajna, the wise. So we wor- this is worship. It's a very physical thing. We we make pluck flowers as you as you see here. We had the kali puja on Tuesday night. We pluck so many flowers, grind the sandal paste, and this is the mm, this is a tapas, a physical tapas of the body. Shotam, purity, keeping the body clean. It's a great help for keeping the mind clean to keep the body clean. This also can be overdone. The middle path is <laughs> how many baths a day? We, we, we. Arjavam, straightforwardness. No crookedness in behavior. Honesty. The word comes from the word riju, which means straight. Sri Ramakrishna used to weigh the hands of his young disciples. And the, the youngsters, we would come to him, he would say, give me your hand, let me weigh it. He'd, he'd hold it in his hand and try to gauge the weight of it. If it was heavy... He would say, oh, this is a deceitful person. If it was light, he would say, ah, your mind is pure, you are, you are guileless. So, arjavam is this, no crookedness in our behavior. Then, brahmacharya, Ranganathananji calls it restraint in physical life, chastity, and ahimsa, non-violence, non-harming of others. These are actually to be practiced on all levels. Ahimsa, it starts on the physical level and then gradually it moves to the level of speech and finally the root is to be practiced uh, in the mind. We can take, for example, take, we'll, we'll take any, we can take any example. Say someone pushes our buttons. Maybe it's our boss or our sister-in-law or our brother-in-law or someone who just pushes our buttons and they, certain things they'll say that make us really mad. And uh, I don't think anyone here is going to go so far as to punch them in the nose. So we've mastered the very, the very first level of Ahimsa. We're not actually going to strike them when they get us mad. But how many of us have slammed a door when we're angry? That's also a, a kind of himsa, a kind of violence. When we're angry, or slam a door or throw, throw a plate. <laughs> so the first level is just to control these, these kinds of manifestations. Slamming doors, punching, slapping, these kind of things. The next level will be to control our speech. Can we restrain the angry words that feel like coming out? when we get annoyed. Angry words also are a form of himsa. All right, so maybe we start to make some progress there and we gradually find that we can swallow our words and we don't, uh, we don't react so strongly. But within, we're still boiling. Again, she said like that. So that's the third stage, is to attain that mental tranquility, to let go of that mental reaction, the mental himsa. So that's how we see that it's a progression from physical to speech to the mind. So Sri Krishna also takes us through these three stages. And we can understand that each one of the principles he gives has uh, an equivalent on each level. But he's specifically giving these five, this well, puja, purity, straightforwardness, 
chastity, non-violence, as the five uh, for the body. Now, tapas of speech. Anudvega karam vakyam satyam priyahitam chayat svadhyayabhyasadam chayva vangmayam tapa ujjate in order for speech to qualify as tapas, according to this verse, it must have four qualities. First, it must be anudvegakaram, causing no vexation, causing no anxiety, giving no offense. Second, satyam, must be true. Third, it must be priyam, must be pleasant, agreeable. And fourth, hitam, it must be beneficial for the hearer. So, not causing any uh, offense, true, pleasant, and beneficial. Shankaracharya em- emphasizes, if any one of these four is missing from the speech, it's not tapas. In addition, there's one more point that Sri Krishna gives here. Swadhyayabhyasanam mm. means regular study of the Vedas, or regular recitation of the Vedas. Why is it an austerity, a tapas of speech? Because the Vedas were chanted. So we can understand this as study of spiritual books. Study of spiritual books. Hmm. This is the importance of feeding the mind with holy thoughts. So we already discussed the tapas of speech a little bit. It's a great help in life. Not just spiritual life, just in our regular life, getting along with our families, with our co-workers, with our co-religionists, for a happy and peaceful home, workplace, and temple. Uh, it means we have to pay attention to what we, we... We have to develop a kind of witness of our speech. And before the words come out, a little mental checking. Huh? Is it true? Oh, it's true, okay. Is it uh, pleasant? Yes, pleasant. Is it beneficial? Is it going to help the person? Yes. All right, then let it come out. Sri Ramakrishna, uh, the, this idea of truth, satyam, Sri Ramakrishna emphasized that truthfulness is the tapasya of the Kali Yuga. He would say this again and again, emphasize the discipline of truth, that that's enough. Just to observe this tapas of truthfulness is enough. Kali Yuga, which is of course to be differentiated from Kali, Kali the Divine Mother, and Kali, the sounds almost the same, but they're uh, entirely different meaning. Kali means strife, quarrel, dissension, contention, war, battle. That's the, <laughs> that's the Iron Age in which we are. And uh, for Sri Ramakrishna, truthfulness <coughs> extends to the mind. He used to say, let there be no theft in the chamber of your heart. What he meant is no hypocrisy. He meant that the lips and the mind, the heart, should be one. They should be one. Now, that doesn't mean that whatever is in the heart should come out through the lips. It means that what should come out through the lips is also in the heart. It means that uh, to make the heart and the lips one, we have to purify the heart so that there's no deceit in the heart, then the there's no untruthfulness in the heart, then the untruthfulness won't come out through the lips either. 
So Sri Ramakrishna would, he always said, truthfulness is the tapasya of the Kali Yuga. And Sri Sarada Devi, the Holy Mother, gives the compliment to this, which is always tell the truth, but never tell a harsh truth. Never tell a harsh truth. So this brings it in line with uh, Sri Krishna's teaching of the Gita. We come to tapas of the mind. Manaf prasada saumyatvam maunam atmavinigraha bhava samshuddhirityetat tapo manasamuchyate Tapas of the mind has five limbs. Serenity of mind, manah prasadaha. Gentleness, somyatvam. Silence, monam. Self-control, atma vinigraha. And purity of heart, bhava samshuddhi. These five are the tapas of the mind. Serenity, we already discussed serenity. Gentleness. Gentleness as we deal with other people. Shankaracharya says gentleness is that which manifests on the face as a, a pleasant expression, as a soft expression, maybe a smile. The face often reveals what's going on in the mind. It's interesting that, uh, that uh, Sri Krishna gives monam, silence, as a mental discipline, not as a discipline of speech. Ordinarily we think of Silence as relating to speech. The true silence, evidently, is not merely in keeping the lips closed. It's keeping the inner chatter quiet. We can keep the lips closed, but if there's all kinds of chatter going on within, it's like an inner dialogue. It's also a kind of speech going on in, in the mind. So the silence, the true silence is the absence of thought, or the, the quiet between thoughts. And these go both ways. They work uh, top down and bottom up. Top down and bottom up. A, a, a quiet mind will result in restraint of speech. And also, restraining the speech will result in a quiet mind. If we spend an hour chit-chatting about nonsense afterwards we tr- and then we afterwards we go and try to meditate we'll find the mind will be restless if we spend an hour talking about the, the holy books then when we sit down to meditate we've just filled the mind with all kinds of good ideas then we'll find meditation is easier impurity of heart this is very much like Sri Ramakrishna's teaching, that there be no theft in the chamber of your heart. The heart, uh, the, there's, abs- there's no trickery or deceit. Sri Krishna goes on to discuss the, the tapas according to the gunas. As he, bra- as he analyzes so many different practices in the Gita according to the gunas, also the practice of tapas he analyzes and describes for us three kinds of tapas according to sattva, rajas, and tamas. Shraddhaya paraya taptam tapas tat trividham narehi 
अफलाकांक्षिभक्त सात्विक परिचक्षते सात्विक तपस इज दैट विच इज प्रैक्टिस्ड विथ परया श्रद्धा विथ ग्रेट श्रद्धा स्वामी रंगनाथानंद कॉल्स श्रद्धा द टोटैलिटी ऑफ पॉजिटिव एटीट्यूड्स टोटैलिटी ऑफ पॉजिटिव एटीट्यूड्स आस्तिक्य बुद्धि that shankaracharya says it's the the mm, our whole being responds to the idea that brahman is true and that conviction informs all our actions so with with great shraddha and desiring no fruit we're not practicing tapas for any fruit we don't want the fruits like name and fame or power any of these things and practiced with great concentration with steadfastness this is satvik tapas sometimes it's easiest to understand what is satvik tapas by comparing comparing it with what is the what are the alternatives what is the rajasik tapas rajasik tapas सत्कारम आनुपूजार्थम तपोदंभेन चयवयत क्रियते तदिह प्रोक्तम राजसम चलमध्रुवम सो राजसिक तपस इज द तपस व्हिच इज प्रैक्टिस्ड विथ विथ एन ऑब्जेक्ट विथ एन एम इन व्यू गेनिंग वेलकम गेटिंग ऑनर एंड वर्शिप एंड विथ ऑस्टेंटेशन शोइंग ऑफ दिस इज राजसिक and it is also unstable and transitory sri ramakrishna's description of the rajasik devotee is apropos he when he sits down or she sits down for worship he'll put on a silk cloth and make sure that everyone can see his japamala which in between the rudraksha beads there are beads of gold maybe a few gems in between then the तामसिक तपस मूढ़ग्राहेनात्मनोयत्पीडया क्रियते तप परोत्सादनाथम वत्तामुदाहृत द तपस विच इज प्रैक्टिस्ड आउट ऑफ अ फूलिश नोशन विथ सेल्फ टॉर्चर और फॉर द पर्पस ऑफ रूएनिंग अनदर इज सेट टू बी तामसिक I think there are still people in certain strange circles that certain dark circles that will undertake spiritual practices or we can't call them spiritual practices some kind of practices of concentration some kind of tapas uh for the purpose of harming someone so this it may harm the person they're trying to harm it will definitely harm the person who's performing such practices this is tamasic tapas So this is tapas according to the Gita. I'd like to just touch on Swami Vivekananda's idea uh, of tapas. He was speaking of Swami Akhandananda, who was the first of his brother disciples to really catch his uh, idea of service, uh, service of humanity as worship of God, and he took up that work of service with great zeal. Swami Ji was very pleased with him. and he was speaking with his disciple mark you what a great hero he is in work 
of fear, death, and the like, he has no cognizance, doggedly going on doing his own work, work for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many. Bahujana Sukhaya, Bahujana Hitaya. The disciple answers, Sir, that power must have come to him as the result of a good deal of tapasya. Swamiji answers, True, power comes of tapasya, but again, working for the sake of others itself constitutes tapasya. The karma yogins regard work itself as part of tapasya. As on the one hand, the practice of tapasya intensifies altruistic feelings in the devotee and actuates him to unselfish work, so also the pursuit of work for the sake of others carries the worker to the last fruition of tapasya, namely the purification of the heart, and leads him thus to the realization of the Supreme Self. In fact, disinterested work is quite as difficult as tapasya, traditional tapasya. You seem to have the settled idea in your mind that work is no tapasya at all. This Swamiji had to fight a lot to bring this new ideal of tapasya, that service to others done unselfishly is also tapasya. Swami Vivekananda's life was itself a beautiful example of tapas. His life was almost defined by it. I'd like to share a couple of readings about Swamiji. Swamiji confessed about his own tapas. He confessed, In my first speech in this country, in Chicago, I addressed that audience as Sisters and Brothers of America. And you know that they all rose to their feet. In fact, they rose to their feet and applauded him for some two minutes. You may wonder what made them do this. You may wonder if I had some strange power. Let me tell you that I did have a power, and this is it. Never once in my life did I allow myself to have even one sexual thought. I trained my mind, my thinking, and the powers that man usually uses along that line I put into a higher channel, and it developed a force so strong that nothing could resist it. So this is the power of Swami Vivekananda's tapas. I'd like to read, uh, in closing, a passage from Sister Nivedita, who is describing Swami Vivekananda's tapas and the naturalness of it. For him, tapas was absolutely natural, not something he had to strive to do, but something which he was, I think, born with. Swamiji talked of the fever of longing to reach God that had wakened in him as a boy and of how he would begin repeating a text before sunrise and remain all day repeating it without stirring. He was trying here to explain the idea of tapasya in answer to my questions, and he spoke of the old way of lighting four fires and sitting in the midst, hour after hour, with the sun overhead, reigning in the mind. In order to concentrate the mind, it will be understood it is first of all necessary that we should be able to forget the body. It is for this purpose that asceticism is practiced, 
and austerities undertaken. Throughout his life, a period of strict tapasya was always a delight to the Swami, who was constantly returning upon this, in spite of the seeming fearlessness with which he took possession of the world. Like a practiced rider touching the reins, or a great musician running his fingers over the keys, he loved to feel again the response of the body to the will, rejoiced to realize afresh his own command of his instrument. I see that I can do anything, he said, when at the end of his life, having undertaken to go through the hot season in Calcutta without swallowing water and being allowed to rinse out the mouth, he found that the muscles of his throat closed of their own accord against the passage of a single drop, and he could not have drunk it if he would. It is not easy to realize the severity of the practices on which such a power of self-control had been developed. The number of hours spent in worship and meditation, the fixity of the gaze, the long-sustained avoidance of food and sleep. With regard to this last, indeed, there was one time when he had spent twenty-five days allowing himself only half an hour's sleep out of every twenty-four hours and from this half-hour he awoke himself. Sleep never afterwards, probably, was a very insistent or enduring guest with him. He never appeared to be practicing austerity, but his whole life was a concentration so profound that to anyone else it would have been the most terrible asceticism. Sarvastaratu Durgani Sarvobhadrani Pashyatu Sarvasad Buddhimapnotu Sarvasarvatranandatu Durjana Sajjano Bhuyat Sajjana Shanti Mapnuyat Shanto Mutcheta Bandhe Bhyo Mukta Shanyan Swasti prajabhyaf paripalayantam Nyayena margena mahi mahi shah Go brahmane bhyashuhamastunityam Loka samasta sukino bhavantu Loka samasta sukino bhavantu Om shanti 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 May all be freed from dangers. May all realize what is good. May all be actuated by noble thoughts. May all rejoice everywhere. May the wicked become virtuous. May the virtuous attain tranquility. May the tranquil be free from bonds. May the freed make others free. May good betide all people. May the sovereign rule the earth following the righteous path. May all beings ever attain what is good. May the worlds be prosperous and happy. Om peace, peace, peace.